gathering west village how you guys responded that's awesome you're alive it's good to hear um, my name is matt if we haven't met before hi everybody online one of the elders around here uh, excited to get to bring you the word this morning on this nice light and easy topic as you can see we're going to dive into together um, as chris says uh, i just deliver the mail right i didn't write it and uh yeah so a quick recap, if you're just kind of diving in with us or you haven't been here in a couple weeks, uh, we've been on our multi-year journey through the book of Matthew. There's only 28 chapters, guys, and we're on 27. We're so close. We're going to get there before Easter. Um, but if we kind of zoom into where we're at right now, we're looking at the last week or so of Jesus' life. Um, so he's done lots of teaching. He's had this time in the garden of intense prayer with his father. He's been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. Um, the last time we were in Matthew, he was put on trial before the religious leaders, and they condemned him of blasphemy. Um, we saw Judas, his betrayer, realize that he betrayed an innocent man and hang himself. And now Jesus has been taken to the political governor, this guy named Pilate, because uh, the religious leaders couldn't actually fully remove Jesus. They needed the political guy to come in and actually sentence him to death. So the big question... I want to ask and look at today is how do we betray Jesus? Um, a nice, lighthearted question that's going to encourage our hearts and our souls. Uh, but my prayer is that we'll actually be left with hope at the end of this. That as we draw to a conclusion, we will find the encouragement that comes from the cross after we go through the sober journey of parts of it. And the big idea I want us to chew on is that we deserve the cross. We are actually traitors that have worked against our king. Yet Jesus, in his sovereign silence, takes the cross that was prepared for us and brings us great joy. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. Hmm. Yeah, Jesus, thank you that your word is active and alive. That it has the power to stir up stuff in us, to speak to our hearts today to challenge us, convict us, teach us, encourage us. So I ask that as we come together around this hard part of your story, that you will become alive to us today. We won't just give mental assent or find this interesting, but we will find it deeply convicting. That we will meet you today. That I will get out of the way where I need to and that your spirit will speak to our hearts. That you'll get rid of apathy, and not disinterest that lives in us. That if we're too comfortable, you'll make us uncomfortable. That if we're downcast and discouraged, that you'll pick us up and hold us close. Uh, so Spirit, come, be with us in this time together. Amen. So I want to look at and kind of focus our time through two questions, two lenses, if you will, today. I want to ask, what does this story tell us about Jesus? And what does the story tell us about us? And so a lot of us approach the Bible as like this good historical informational textbook. We get to learn about God. We get to learn about Jesus. Maybe learn how to live our lives. Um, we just go there, take some information, digest it, move on. 
But some of you may have heard this analogy of the Bible is actually a mirror. We hold it up and we get a reflection back of ourselves. It shows us flaws about our character, who we are, what we believe, what we believe about God. And that's what I want to do today. I want to hold this up as a mirror so it can shine back some truth into our lives. So open up your Bibles. Matthew 27 is where we're going to land. Grab your app, whatever you need. Uh, I think there's some free Bibles up on the table there. There's blue ones or orange ones, whatever color you like best. Uh, and you can grab one and open it up together. So we're going to start in verse 11. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Such a calm, I don't know, I love that simple statement. You said it. It's true. He's so calm and confident, right? And we've seen this calmness in him ever since he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before, right before he's betrayed, he goes to his father. He passionately pleads for him to remove this burden from him. But if not, I will take it. God, his father, decides not to remove it. That Jesus needs to continue on his mission. So Jesus walks this out calmly, knowing that his father is in complete control. That everything that is about to happen, and Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen, is actually according to God's plan, no matter how hard it gets. And this shapes this calm response that, you have said so, I'm the king of the Jews. He could have easily, I know my heart would be, well, let's play word games. Like, did I actually say that? I didn't quite say those words. Could have denied Pilate's claim. But he knows, even if Pilate might be misinformed, that he is king of everything. So we need to stop and appreciate these pictures of Jesus. Like, Where do we actually ever see someone like this in our world? Someone with absolute authority. Absolute authority. He made everything. He's bigger than everything. King of everything. Acting in such this mild and calm way. A lot of the pictures I see of authority, be it at work, or politics, or wherever we're at, sports, people, they hold tight, right? This is my thing, and I'm going to beat people into submission with it. I can't let it go. I need to defend it. If it's threatened, I need to act out against those threats. Those are the pictures of authority that I see often in our world. But Jesus calmly faces this grave threat in front of him. It's a great picture. Stop and appreciate it. Don't become used to it. Anytime you see a leader like this in a movie or on TV, they are inspired by Jesus. This picture of Jesus has woven its way into our culture, so maybe we've become a little used to it, but we should stop and be in awe of it. Because this is a man I want to follow. This is a God worth giving my life to. And in this whole story, I don't know if you guys caught it as we were, David is reading through it. These are actually Jesus' last words. You have said so. I'm king. And the whole rest of the story, he's silent. It's quite amazing. So keep that in mind as this trial plays out. Picture a man standing there being bombarded by accusations and questions and yelling crowds. In the heat of that moment, just calmly sits there in sovereign silence. Continue on in verse 12. It says, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. So this is the group that had just tried him for blasphemy. 
They followed along to this next trial, and they're closely paying attention, right? Because Pilate, the governor, is not going to care about blasphemy. That's a religious issue. It's not a political issue. So they come with this other accusation, that he's trying to be king. That's a political issue. The Romans rule. You can't have another king. That is treason. And Jesus replies with no answer. Sovereign silence. I didn't come up with that term, but I'm going to use it a lot because I like it. I stole it from one of the books I read. Can't take credit. Um, but it's alliteration, so it sticks with you. It's perfect, right? Only a king, fully in knowledge of his own power, fully in control, can remain silent. These accusations. It tells us so much about Jesus, right? He was fully within his right to stand up and defend himself. Even in the Roman legal system, fully within his right, it was expected that he would offer a rebuke to these accusations against him, right? And he doesn't. If he did, he probably would have been let go. All he had to say was, no, 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 no. I'm talking about this spiritual kingdom of freedom from sin. It's totally different. I'm not challenging Caesar. I told them they can pay taxes to Caesar. I, I said those who live by the sword die by the sword. Jesus could have said all these things. He could have walked away. But he remains silent. He takes them on. So what do we learn about Jesus in this moment? This moment of silence. We can see that God's mission, that his father's plan, was the most important thing in his life. That his own rights could be set down, his rights to defense and freedom could be laid aside for God's plan. We can see that he fully trusts his father. Just think of the trust this requires. You're walking towards a certain death, a painful death. And he says, I trust my father. I trust that his plan is better than mine. We can see that he doesn't take this overwhelming force available to him. Earlier he says, I could have called down legions of angels to defend me. That power is still within his reach, and yet he decides not to use it. He doesn't force his way, doesn't have to get what he wants. Does this look like the leaders we choose to follow? I don't think so. It's pretty counterintuitive to us, actually. So what would a people defined by this type of leader look like? Would we fight for our rights when they're taken from us? Would we calmly face our enemies knowing that God is in control? Would we use whatever power was at our disposal to ensure we got what we wanted, that our desires reigned? So I'm chewing on these questions this week as I look through this passage, and they're highlighted with news all this convoy and protests and all these things. So they're chewing on, chewing on them, um, and I came up with a rant, because that's what preachers do. So uh, prepare for a mat rant. You don't get a lot of those, so. 
But I, I, it's actually like, first of all, I, I get angry when I see people associating Jesus with things I think don't look like Jesus. So my heart was angry at first, especially as I looked at some of the signs I was driving downtown with my boys and you see like all these truckers going by and they might have you know, legitimate causes and concerns. But when there's signs like saying God's raising up an army on the side of their truck, and the next sign says F Trudeau, and I have to explain to my kids, like, what is going on here? Like, yeah, really angry, but also really sad. Because how insulting is it to Jesus that we put his name on our petty protests, right? Like, we are belittling it. We are holding him up to one of our causes, trying to make it holy, trying to spiritualize it, to give it meaning and weight. But in doing that, we dirty his name. He is so holy. We don't get to use him as we want. We don't see protester Jesus in the Bible, right? It's not a thing. They didn't have placards back then. It just couldn't happen. He doesn't walk around with signs. He doesn't threaten people with his power, saying, I'm going to raise up an army to fight you. Instead, the Jesus we see, he lays down his rights for the sake of God's mission. He stands up for those that can't stand up for themselves. He knocks down the prideful and the arrogant and the loud and the boisterous. He humbles them. So I was just convicted that we just can't use Jesus' name to defend our rights. Because he laid down his rights for God's mission. And he calls us to do the same. He calmly faced these trials because he knows that the Father has a plan and he expects his followers to do the same. So if you have been out protesting, either at convoys or wherever in your life, where you're up against something hard, and you're using Jesus to do it, you're using him as a hammer to drive down your point and silence all your critics, you need to stop. Jesus doesn't want his name on your causes. He already has a cause. He already has a mission for his followers. He wants to make disciples of him. We need to make disciples of Jesus, not of ourselves, not of our pet projects, not of our passions. We make disciples of Jesus. So he would prefer that you stop pursuing those things and get on board with his plan to save the world. There's a whole bunch of nuance there. I'm not going to go into it. <laughs> Deal with my rant. Um, let's go back to the text. Love to talk to you more if you have deep and passionate feelings about them. Verse 13. Then Pilate asked them, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? So they charged him with blasphemy, the religious leaders. They want him dead. They need the, government, the governor to seal the deal. So, you know, we've seen Jesus is saying he's king. What are you going to do about it? He's challenging Roman authority, Pilate. He wants you gone. He's committing an act of treason. And honestly, this was a really good strategy on the, on the, the religious leaders' part, right? Um, they're not being dumb about this. They have a plan. They're putting it into action. 
Um, there had been lots of other rebellious Jewish leaders who tried to kick the Romans out because it was part of their culture and identity that they were going to be restored as a nation. And so they're counting on the fact that Pilate isn't going to fully understand the nuance here. That he isn't going to know what Jesus' message was act, actually about. Uh, Pilate's actually a pretty smart guy, though. And he's not ignorant of these facts. He can see through what the religious leaders are trying to do. And so as we go into verse 14, we can start to understand his reaction. It says in verse 14, But Jesus made no reply, sovereign silence again, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Pilate knew. He knew Jesus wasn't preaching violent upheaval, stirring up crowds. He knew all those things. He had spies. He was trying to be a good governor. Knew what was going on. And so he really, really expects Jesus to defend himself here, right? To point out the errors and the accusations. My hunch, as I chewed on this story a lot, is Pilate actually kind of liked Jesus. He doesn't want him to die. He's a coward, as we'll see later. But he gives Jesus so many opportunities to defend himself. And so when Jesus doesn't reply, not even to a single charge, Pilate is filled with great amazement. Great amazement. It shocks him, right? He gave Jesus these outs. He wanted Jesus to take one of those outs. He doesn't. Stunned silence. Shocked amazement. Do you feel like Pilate here? Does that well up some awe in you? I find myself so easily used to Jesus. I know this story. I've read it hundreds of times. I've heard it preached. It's very familiar to me. It's comfortable. I can skim through it. Acknowledge some facts and move on. Very rarely am I shocked. Do I look at Jesus and his silence with great amazement here? And sometimes we just need to stay, stop and take a moment to appreciate him. To reflect on Jesus' actions. To see that he is worthy of our praise. That all those songs we sing have great depth behind them. They're an act of worship, of praise, of ascribing worth to something that awes and amazes us. Not just because we like to sing. And so you may be asking, like, well, how do I even do that? How do I, you know, Matt, you get to study this for like 10 hours, chew on it, go through it, reflect on it, read books on it, so, of course, you can be brought to that place of amazement. But life's busy. It's work and kids and Netflix. Where am I going to make time to be amazed by Jesus? <clears throat> and so I've, I picked two primary spaces in my life. There's more. Um, everyone will be a little different here. But I thought I'd show them as examples of how we can do this as a people, as God's people. How we can cultivate awe and amazement in us of the God that we claim to reshape our whole lives around. So the first one for me is God's creation. Outside, nature, 
seeing this canvas that he painted for us. This like grand, I don't know if you ever sit at the beach and realize, man, it's just like looking out of the ocean. This is huge and I'm looking at a pinprick of it. The world is giant, never mind the solar system. So as I go for walks, as I enjoy the beauty and grandness of what Jesus created, these moments stir up on me. This summer I made a habit of going to the lagoon, walking end to end, uh, either in silence or, or with some worship music on, and just allowing myself to experience some awe. For the spirit to stir something up in me. Because in those moments, I can't help but praise all the nagging things of work and life and responsibility. They actually get put in their proper place, and God gets put in his proper place up here. So that's one. And the second one for me where I really find moments of awe in Jesus are contemplation of the Bible, of the story. And notice I didn't say reading. A lot of us are good, diligent Christians we have a Bible plan, we're reading through it in a year, we're getting through our 10 chapters and we're moving on. There's value to that. There's value in knowing God's story intellectually and how things fit into it and being faithful in our habits and our disciplines. But I said contemplation of scripture. Slowing down, reading through a passage a few times. I like to use the word chewing on it, gnawing on it, getting the feel of it, looking at it from different perspectives. You know, you read this passage, you put yourselves in Pilate's shoes, you put yourself in the religious leader's shoes, you put yourself in the crowd's shoes. You can't put yourself in Jesus' shoes, sorry. You don't get to be that person. You're not the hero of the story. But doing that, along with praying for the Spirit to reveal to you what's going on here, looking at the emotions, the feelings of what's being drawn up in all the people in the story, this, brings, this makes the text come alive. God's word is active and alive. And that stirs up awe in me. Without fail, when I preach, typically get to those moments. And if I haven't, I worry. I'm like, I can't go up there. This hasn't done its work in me. How could I come up and teach and preach on this? Those are just two simple ways. And I encourage you, if it's one of those, to make a habit of it or find Find what stirs up these moments of awe in your life. And then make a habit of creating space for those activities. Because I would not call West Village an off-field church. I would say there's some of us that are deeply impacted by Jesus and filled with awe at him. But a lot of us are really apathetic to the majesty of Jesus. We're so used to him in a bad way. He's come familiar so that we actually ignore what is amazing about him. And we need to take seriously the habits of being awed by Jesus so that it can impact our time together, our times of worship, but also impact how we interact and relate in community groups and DNA and all throughout the rest of the week. Because if we don't, then we risk our worship and our gospel becoming hollow and lifeless. It loses its power because we forget how powerful Jesus is, how awe-inspiring he is. Jesus just risks becoming this holy statue that we place on the shelf of our life 
We look to it, have a warm, fuzzy feeling, and move on. Instead, if we hold him in awe, then he is an active, living person that is in our life every day turning it upside down, pointing us on his mission, pointing us to his desires. So I encourage you, find space in your life to develop awe of Jesus. Let's go back to the text. Verse 15. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. This is another Jesus, for those of you paying attention. Uh, Very confusing, I know. Uh, It's kind of like Matt or John. Like You just would have had more people named Jesus back then. If you name your kid Jesus now, we're probably going to say, are you feeling okay? Like, that's like you're putting a lot of expectations on that kid. And they're going to be really confused because everybody's swearing, and they're like, what? What? Oh, 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 you meant that? You're just using Jesus as a swear, not my name. Okay, cool. Um, But this Jesus Barabbas, likely well-known rebel, he's a freedom fighter trying to restore Israel to a kingdom. Um, Like I said, there is a pattern of these type of figures emerging, um, some with good reasons, some just because they like to steal and uh, cause a fuss and be rebels without a cause, even though he has a cause. But he's an outlaw. He's hoping that Israel will be restored as a nation. This guy had actually committed treason. The Romans had already convicted him. They'd already prepared a cross for him and some of his buddies to die on that Jesus will take his place on. But at the Passover, which is the biggest festival in the Jewish calendar, the Roman governor Pilate had developed this custom of letting one go free. It's just, you know, pandering to the Jewish people to make them like him more. Uh, But he's trying to use that to get out of killing Jesus the Messiah. He's like, okay, I got one more shot. Jesus won't stand up for himself. These crowds, they were worshiping him a week ago when he came in through the gate. Maybe they'll choose him. Let's go on, we'll see what actually happens. Verse 17. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he knew that it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. The crowd is left with the final say. Pilate won't make a call. He's too worried about the crowd, as we'll see later. So are they going to choose this freedom fighter who's promising to restore Israel right now, even though he's failed because he's been caught and convicted, so he's not very good at his job. But are they going to choose that guy? Or are they going to choose this, I call them the freedom preacher, right? Who's promising this kingdom of heaven, who's gone around preaching freedom for the oppressed and the captives, painting a picture of how God intended people to live, of what human flourishing would actually look like. Which one are they going to choose? Or would you choose? Instant gratification, restored to Israel now? or patient, long-lasting fulfillment of this kingdom of heaven that is breaking into our world slowly. Sitting here, you're going to pick the last one because that's the good answer. 
But I know my heart, it tends towards instant gratification. I want it, and I want it now. Our hearts yearn so much. There's so much brokenness in us that needs to be satisfied or healed or fixed. And sometimes we just feel like we would do anything to feel better right now. We become so impatient with Jesus that we start to deny his kingdom, saying that sounds great in theory, but in practice, I can't live like this anymore. And so we start to build our own kingdom instead, right? We don't trust that he will take care of us, so we've got to build up some wealth. So we have security. Don't have to worry, because there's numbers, there's dollars in a digital bank account somewhere that means something. Instead of saying, God owns everything, he's going to take care of me. We don't trust that Jesus will satisfy us, so instead we look to sex, or food, or drink, for temporary pleasure. God, it's, it doesn't matter. It's just sex. You didn't design us for like long-term relationships with deep emotional ties. That sounds like too much work. Let's just be one and done. We don't trust that God's plan is actually the best plan. So we set up things for our own lives, saying, I pridefully know what's best. Take a little bit of this Bible that I agree with. I'll substitute it with some other things that I think are better. Really don't need to go and serve others. They can pay someone to do that. I'll just serve myself. We're constantly choosing this run-down slum house that is right in front of us instead of patiently waiting for this palace that Jesus is building for us. And this is the crowd. This is us. They've lost sight. We have lost sight of this glorious vision of human flourishing that Jesus paints in the Bible. You sit and you hear it in a sermon. You're like, that is awesome. You probably at some point said, didn't know Jesus, heard about his good news, about this kingdom that he is proclaiming, and said, my heart yearns for that. And you said yes to it. And then we've let it go. We've dropped it. It's been drowned out by lies of instant gratification and self-serving instant fulfillment. We can't forget that this place of joy and healing and perfect satisfaction is before us, a place of no more sin or sadness or death. This is Jesus' kingdom. It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring, just like he is. But are we just like the crowd? And we gladly kill Jesus in our short-sighted desires. Is that us? I think in small ways, the answer is yes. Everybody does it differently. But our short-sighted desires ignore, silence, and kill Jesus often. Let's read on in verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. I'll spend a lot of time on this. Um, probably shouldn't read into it too much. But really what Matthew and the Bible is trying to do here is just 
brings to top of mind again, this is an innocent man. This Jesus is innocent, Pilate. Don't kill him. Have nothing to do with him. But as we've seen, and we'll see, Pilate is really just an indecisive coward, right? He doesn't want Jesus to die, but he doesn't want to upset the crowds. So he lets, leaves the decision with them. Verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Crowd, easy to stir up to violence, get caught up in the moment. Their leaders are goading them on, so they continue with their short-sighted picture or desire. They'd rather have their good kingdom of no Romans than Jesus' vision of freedom from sin. And they'd heard. He'd been preaching for a week straight, never mind three years straight, about what his kingdom looks like. And the crowds again and again are amazed by Jesus. But here the crowds and their selfish desire make a different choice. Verse 21. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. The short-sighted choice. Man, so easy to be upset with the crowds here, right? How could they? How dare they? To grieve? Be sad for them? This is us, as we've been saying. We pick the quick and easy route. Get caught up in that crowd. Stop thinking and choose the wrong thing. They choose to let the traitor go and kill their true king. Their choice is treason. Yet Jesus accepts it in sovereign silence. He could have been like, gotcha. I knew you were never actually for me. But he accepts it in sovereign silence. Verse 22, Pilate continues on. He says, what shall I do then? With Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered. They all answered. Crucify him. Kill him. He makes us uncomfortable. He doesn't give us what we want right now. So get rid of him. Give us our picture of heaven. Take away anything that challenges that. Pilate continues on. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Gives them another chance. Tell me why. Give me a reason. They will not even engage. They just yell louder in the heat of their selfish desire. The heat of our selfish desire, we say, kill him. Move on from Jesus. That way is not the way that my broken heart desires right now. And they just drown out any questioning. This sure sounds like conversations today, right? Your opinion is different than mine. Be quiet. I'm going to get 100 friends to yell at you. It's called Facebook. And we haven't really changed in 2,000 years. We just have different tools to amplify our bad opinions and wrong choices. So if you were sitting there and saying, well, Matt, that's crowd. They're a bunch of Israelite peasants. I'm not like that. I've read Wikipedia once, the whole thing. <laughs> I know things. I am better. You're not. We are exactly the same. 
We get caught up in our narrow-minded bad decisions all the time. And they pull us along and they trick us and they deceive us into killing our king. Into saying, I want this outlaw rebel. I am this outlaw rebel. He is better. I am better than anything Jesus can offer. We hold ourselves up. We find like-minded people to amplify our beliefs. And we lose sight of our true king, of how to humbly walk alongside him. Continues on in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, picture this, things getting out of control, boisterous, loud. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood. He is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Whew. You ever been so caught up in the moment that you just, who cares about the consequences? We're going. This train can't stop. That's the crowd right now. They don't care. Condemn our families. Condemn our children. We're getting what we want right now. It doesn't matter what the cost is. Their thing is the most important thing. Verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. God is sent to be beaten and killed in our place. Jesus was put on the cross that was prepared and meant for Barabbas. That was prepared and meant for the one that had actually committed treason, that had denied the authorities, the ruler, the king. And Jesus willingly took that place of the treasonous criminal because that was the way for all treasonous criminals, us, to come to him. And as I conclude, I want to leave us with the tension of this impending, gruesome death. Like it says, Jesus was flogged at the end. That is not a pleasant experience. Most people would die just from the flogging. There's this tension, right? That's coming, this gruesome death, the death we deserve. Us treasonous rebels deserve. Yet he dies in our place. And this injustice should sadden us. Because deep down, we know, we know that we deserve punishment for how we've sinned, rebelled against God. We are the traitors to the true king. We are the ones that falsely accuse Jesus to get what we want. We can't ignore the tragedy of the innocent Jesus being put to death in our place. It should sober us. It should humble us. It's a hard place to be, but we need to go there sometimes. But the tension comes when we realize the great joy that the cross also brings, joy and awe, awe as we look upon the lengths that God would go to so that we could come back to him, so that we could be part of his kingdom of heaven. The contrast between the sorrow of Jesus dying and the realization of why he chose to, these things make the gospel so much sweeter so much bigger, so much more amazing. The gospel is good news because it speaks into our brokenness. We deserve that death on a cross, 
yet Jesus took it instead. He paid for our sin once and for all so that we can be made whole and welcome back into his family. This is good news. This is amazing news. So let your hearts grieve the death of Jesus. Do not get stuck there. Let your hearts mourn your sin and rebellion. Recognize that his great sacrifice brings you freedoms from the wrongs that you have done, that you are doing, and that you will do. Freedom from past, present, and future. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus loved you despite all those things, and in sovereign silence, walk to the cross to fulfill his Father's plan to bring us back into God's family. For those of you that are sitting here listening online or listening 10 years in the future and wondering what the Freedom Convoy even is, um, those of you that have yet to say yes to Jesus, my prayer is that this picture of him, this picture of a king fully in control, fully aware of the plan, that picture, that amazing picture of Jesus will move you closer towards calling him the king of your life. To saying all these other things that vie for lordship of my life are trash, Jesus is the only one that can stand. Don't hesitate today to pray and ask him to reveal himself more fully to you if you're struggling with that. And if today is the day that you say yes, then joyfully take communion with us in a little bit. Jesus would be so gladdened to have you in his kingdom, to welcome you into his family. For those of us that have said yes to Jesus, that claim him as our king, that confess with our mouth that he is our Lord, we need to regularly reflect on what he went through as he walked towards the cross. We need to be amazed by the God that we follow, awestruck by him, Our hearts need to be stirred at the great lengths he went to for us. Do not let your heart become hard towards the amazing things Jesus went through.